You're listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Maurice Pickard, your host, and with me today is Dr. Helen Caldicott, a pediatrician who is speaking from us from Sydney, Australia. Dr. Caldicott is also the founder of Women's Action for Nuclear Disarmament and the founder and first president of Physicians for Social Responsibility. Thank you very much for joining us today. That's a pleasure. What we'll be talking about, if I can paraphrase one of your books, what can be done if you love this planet? Could you tell me first, Dr. Caldicott, how it came to be that you became an advocate for the causes that are so important to you? I've always been fascinated by the life process since I was a tiny child. I then read On the Beach when I was about 14 about a nuclear war that occurred by accident and everyone in the world died except people in Melbourne, which is where I lived in Australia. And gradually the radioactive fallout came down to Melbourne and everyone died of acute radiation sickness. So I was never the same again. And then I entered medical school age 17 and learned what radiation did to Drosophila fruit fly. These were Muller's experiments for which he won a Nobel Prize. And at the time in 1956, Russia and America were testing bombs in the atmosphere and there was a very large fallout. And People like Barry Commoner and Linus Pauling were saying that children could get leukemia and cancer from the strontium-90 and the like. And I couldn't understand why they were doing such stupid things. And I think from that time on, I've always been very curious, been acutely aware of the dangers of radiation, both from weapons and nuclear power. In your book, If You Love This Planet, there are many things described, and I couldn't help it when I read it, thinking about Vice President Gore's recent movie. Did you think about that now, a movie that has probably been made some 25 years after the publication of your book, and how some of the same issues that concerned you continue to concern him? Yeah, well, you know, I wrote all about global warming and, you know, gleaned the scientific literature in 1991 in, in If You Love This Planet, and I just have this concept that, well, I've written about it, everyone will read the book and it'll be fixed. And, of course, a few people read it, but it makes no difference. And I have to say that I think that Al Gore has contributed an enormous amount to our understanding of global warming, and I honor him. But in truth, the data was around many years ago. But it's become worse, and my book is currently being, I'm updating it now with the new information coming from the International Panel on Climate Change, which is due with a new report in a couple of days, and all the other data that's coming in about the Arctic melting and the Greenland ice cap melting and the glaciers melting and the droughts and the flooding rains and the cyclones and the like and the like. You know, you live in Australia, which is not that far from Antarctica, and I think that was the first place where scientists began to become concerned that there actually was a hole in our atmosphere. Did that play a role in your becoming aware? And do people in Australia react differently to global warming than apparently Americans do here? Well, on your last question, global warming is really affecting us. We're in the middle of a very dreadful drought, the worst drought in 100 years. And our food baskets are not able to produce the food. So we're acutely aware of global warming. What's more, we have the most ghastly bushfires, wildfires, but you're having them too. We're very aware of the uh, hole in the ozone. One in nine Australians get malignant melanoma. I've had one on my back. SCC and BCs are just ubiquitous in older people. One in 93 Americans, I think, get melanoma. So 
The sun is really toxic now. If you go out in the sun for 15 minutes in the summer, you get sunburned. So yes, we're acutely aware, yet we also live in a fairyland. We say, well, she'll be right, mate. Slather on the sunburn cream or the sun protector and just get on with drinking our beer and going to the races. I'm <laughs> being a bit facetious, but you know, it's a little bit like that. And we have a prime minister who, like your president, refuses almost to accept global warming and then says, well, nuclear power is the answer to global warming. So both Bush and John Howard are in the same boat, so to speak, intellectually and morally and philosophically. I remember when I was in medical school and melanomas began to become more apparent in Australia and everyone said, well, no wonder they moved a group of people who shouldn't live in Australia, people from Wales and Scotland and England, into a community where they are genetically weren't prepared for it. We now know that that was probably a faulty fairy tale as to why melanomas and skin cancer have become so prominent in Australia. Well, it's not really because fair-skinned, red-headed people have a much higher than normal incidence of melanomas and, you know, they're you know, from Scotland and the, and the like. So, in fact, that's true. And Aborigines, there was, I remember, a foot in the pathology museum, an Aboriginal foot when I was a medical student, with a melanoma on the sole, but that's extremely rare. So, in fact, what you said is accurate. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. I thought Australia exported things like wheat and corn. Are you saying that they're not exporting grains anymore? We don't grow corn. Uh, well, I should say American, grains. But wheat. Yeah. We still do, but the wheat harvests are, are very much declined in amount because of the drought. So the wheat farmers are, as we say, doing it hard. And also the sheep farmers, and my sister grows a wonderful breed of sheep and they can't sell their rams now on the market because no one can buy them because they have no money. You know, we're talking about global warming and we're talking about needing energy. We know that China, for example, is building a coal-burning plant one a week at the present time. What are we going to do? What is the answer to meeting this fuel-hungry drive, almost this addiction to petroleum that the United States has and probably shares with some other countries? What are we to do about this? Okay, well, Australia exports the coal to China, so we're in the guilty seat for sure. Look, it's America that has to lead the way, and with your present president, you're not going to do it. And I hope to God you get someone with a bit of vision. I mean, you need someone like FDR again, a real statesperson, visionary, to be president, and, and people who are scientifically and medically literate elected to your Congress and Senate. I mean, it's not appropriate for businessmen and lawyers to be running the country because they have no understanding of science and what is happening to the planet. So it's the doctors and the scientists that need to take over. I mean, and I mean that really seriously. Now, as far as global warming goes, we have to stop burning fossil fuel now. And that's coal and that's oil because we're almost beyond the point of no return re-global warming. The temperatures are going to go up maybe two or three degrees centigrade. The oceans are going to rise possibly meters within the next hundred years. One third of the human race lives at sea level. They'll be either drowned or turned into ecological refugees. There'll be epidemics of arthropod-borne diseases like malaria and eastern equine encephalitis and the like because the tropics will move north and south and there will be millions, trillions of Anopheles mosquitoes and the like being bred by our problems with global warming. And so no one understands that the planet is in the intensive care unit on a downhill spiral and is almost terminal. 
and that we have an acute clinical emergency on our hands. Certainly politicians have no idea. They're being lobbied by the fossil fuel industry and by the nuclear industry. They've got their heads in the sand. They're not open to learning or being educated. The media is much to blame. When I first wrote, If You Love This Planet, there are 60 media corporations. There are now five. And it's infotainment. It's not education. So in a certain sense, the media is determining the earth, the fate of the earth. And we are, <laughs> we do. I mean, all of us are now physicians to a dying planet. And I don't mean physicians now. I mean every human living on the planet. And unless they're well educated, they won't rise up, have a revolution to save the planet. And that's what must happen. Or we're doomed. And it's not just us. There are 30 million other species which are probably more important than Homo sapiens inhabiting the planet with us. If you're just joining us, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Maurice Pickard, and I'm speaking with Dr. Helen Caldicott, and we're discussing the real threat to our planet. If we can continue this train of thought that we're taking, do you think that greenhouse gas taxes or cap-and-trade laws would improve the economics of alternative energies. I've just produced a roadmap for a carbon-free, nuclear-free future for the U.S. by 2050 with a brilliant scientist called Dr. Arjun Makajani in Washington, D.C. And it goes like this. You tax carbon to the tune of $30 to $40 per tonne right now. And that will, over time, reduce carbon emissions to zero. You do not trade because then the mafia get into it and all sorts of nefarious deals made. No trading, just straight, hard cap tax, number one. Number two, you remove the subsidies from nuclear power. Nuclear power is a socialized industry. It's interesting. You've got a socialized industry in a capitalistic market. Move the subsidies, and nuclear power will die a natural death. The money that's earned from the carbon taxes will then be channeled into solar, solar panel on every parking lot in America, plug-in hybrids that charge up during the day, with solar electricity, you take the car home at night, plug it into your house and charge up your house. Wind power, there's enough wind west of the Mississippi to supply the whole of the country with electricity, two and a half times the amount it currently uses. Americans can save 28% of the electricity they currently use just by turning off their lights. I'm being simplistic, but that's true. Uh, nuclear power produces 20% of the electricity you use, so you don't need it, period, if you're efficient. Stop using clothes dryers. Hang your clothes outside in the sun in the summer and dry them by the furnace in the winter. Hot rock, geothermal energy. You can heat and cool your house through the whole year by using geothermal energy because the temperature of the Earth is the same, just below the surface of the Earth. Tidal power, wave power, and biofuel are all on the horizon. So in other words, the technology to use to provide the electricity that modern society needs is all here. It's economically cheaper than nuclear by far, and if you look at the cost of producing global warming and the ramifications of that down the time track, it's by far cheaper than using fossil fuels. Do we have time right now with India and China anxious to grow their economy and provide for their billions of people, do we have time to wait for this kind of technology to take hold? You don't need to wait. The technology's here. America is very creative. You need to take the lead, and that means, you know, 250, 270 million people get moving. By the year 2010, you can have many of these systems in place. 
you need to upgrade your grid. But you are the leaders. You export your technology, you export your ideas, you export your propaganda to China, to India. Show them how to produce electricity efficiently, safely, cleanly. Don't wait. Do it now. You've got time. You can set most of these systems up within three years. Don't tell me you can't. Second World War, you had no weapons. Pearl Harbor was bombed, and within a year, you were mass-producing planes and ships, bombs, and God knows what. America can do anything it wants to do. Show the world how to survive. I'd like to thank Dr. Helen Caldicott, who's been our guest today, and we've been discussing global warming, a threat to our planet. And I'm Dr. Maurice Pickard, and you've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. For questions and comments, please send your emails to xm at reachmd.com or visit us at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.